welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPAGAN. My name is Tamar Haja, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, Dr. Jen Lee from Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. Hello. Hello. (laughs) A bonus episode. We haven't done one of these in a while. No, it's about a hot topic. Very Mm, hot topic. That neither of us know anything about because we're not hepatologists. Exactly. (laughs) Luckily, we have a hepatologist (laughs) on this episode. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Today's topic is about the rising cases of severe acute hepatitis that are leading to acute liver failure in some occasions. And is it adeno? Is it COVID? I don't know. We don't know. There's more to learn. I'm sure we'll get some answers, hopefully, in the near future. I don't know. But what we know for now is what we have on our episode today. So very excited to share this with you. And today our guest is Jen. Dr. Can you our guest? Yeah, our guest is Dr. Henry Shao. Dr. Shao is a pediatric hepatologist at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama. And he was one of the first people to talk about this outbreak that we're seeing. And he was one of the authors on the CDC's original report about this topic. So we are really looking forward to having him. And he even joined us on his anniversary. I know. Isn't that so nice of him? (laughs) I know. I have to say if it were my anniversary, I might've been like, ah, maybe another day. He's thinking of joining Twitter. So everybody send him a happy anniversary tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Also, also, we are going to be having a Peach GI Twitter chat on this topic. So be sure to follow us. Do we have the day yet tomorrow? (laughs) We will announce the date soon. So be sure to follow us on Twitter and follow the PGI chat on Twitter. We're going to have a bunch of great habitologists. We're going to have a great discussion. So be sure to look out for that. Yeah. Well, let's go check it out. On to the show. On to the show. Welcome, Dr. Shao, to Bow Sounds. We're excited to have you today. This is a bonus episode. We're going to talk about a hot topic. There's rising numbers of severe acute hepatitis and leading to acute liver failure. So we're excited to have you today. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. And so <laughs> it's uh, really an honor to, to be on with you guys. Yay. <laughs> so, we actually haven't had a bonus episode in a while. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So no pressure yeah. on you, Henry, but our last bonus episode was the highest listens in the first day, I think, of any of them. Oh, gosh. And that was the COVID for gastroenterologist episode. So. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> no pressure. Just kind of shake focus. it off. <laughs> got to focus. Yeah. So we're going to start with our first question, just to get to know you a little bit better. How would you describe yourself in one sentence? How would I describe myself in one sentence? Okay. So I am a father of two beautiful daughters and a husband of today, eight years to my wife. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And I also happen to be a pediatric hepatologist and gastroenterologist who enjoys to eat food and watches baseball. 
That's awesome. So, (laughs) well, happy anniversary. Thank Um, you. Sorry, we have you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have dinner plans later. It's fine. It's not a deal. Cool, 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 cool. Excellent. So, you like baseball, but tell us about a book, movie, podcast, or TV show that you recently got into that you recommend. Sure. Other than bowel sounds, right? Um, Of course. uh, (laughs) You know, I've been super busy the last year. And so, I haven't had time, honestly, to read a lot of books, but recently me and my wife have been doing these daddy-daughter days, mommy-daughter days. My daughter, who's five, likes to go to the movies. And so I took her to see something called The Bad Guys, which is like a a, a cartoon heist movie. It was good. She liked it. You know, I I wouldn't say I I totally recommend it, but it was fun. It's good for kids. That's probably the last (laughs) <laughs> movie that I saw, honestly. Um, and it has, it, it, it's been a while, honestly. So that's pretty cool. It's actually a children's book series. So if anybody wants to read it, <laughs> really? Yeah. My nine year old nephew read uh, the books. So hmm. I wouldn't say I read them, but I'm interested <laughs> in reading them. <laughs> yeah. Last time I went to the movies, it was for Encanto. So same here. <laughs> oh, man. It's that's a good on repeat. That's on repeat in my house. And so, yeah. No worries. We will not talk about Bruno today. No, please. We can't. (laughs) Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your interest in hepatology? Yeah, I guess it was kind of a roundabout way. You know, when I was in residency, I knew or I thought I knew that I wanted to do something that, you know, where I could use my hands still, which wasn't in the field of surgery. And so I thought pediatric GI would be cool. I did some rotations in medical school and I said, well... You can do endoscopies, procedures. And so I reached out to our division. So I went to residency in Houston. I was at Baylor. And a couple of the attendings reached out to me and offered me some projects. And so one of them that I did focused on characterizing kids with PSC and IBD. And it was actually more focused on the IBD portion. But for some reason, I just felt more intrigued by the PSC part. You know, just there wasn't a lot on it. And it went into a rabbit hole after that reached out, got some more projects, learned a little, little bit more about it, got into fellowship. And it just seemed like I was always more drawn to the liver side. I really liked the pathophysiology. I liked the patient population. You can still do procedures. And then the aspect of transplant was really cool to me. And so, you know, you kind of got a little bit of everything, the intensity, the bread and butter and things like that. And so I kind of just fell into it. Honestly, I had really good mentors and they all really helped me out through the way. And here I am <laughs> as a hepatologist. So anyone can do it. And we had a really good episode with Evelyn Sue from Seattle. Talks all about how hepatology is an amazing subspecialty within GI. Um, it's kind of cool that you you know started on the lumen side and you ended up on the liver side. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I still really like procedures and I like some of that stuff. I'm not a huge fan of functional abdominal pain. So that might have pushed me towards liver side too, but I still like GI. For some reason, it became my favorite patient population. <laughs> Yeah. No, for well, real, well, bless you. You, you, you do a, yeah, you do a, a big service to all. Us, I <laughs> I'm not a motilitist, but that's one thing I, uh, I enjoy. <laughs> so, moving on. So today we're going to have a really special bonus episode. And as our listeners may know, there has been this 
surge in acute severe hepatitis in children that is in some cases leading to acute liver failure, even requiring a transplant. And this has really just been going on in the last few months since last October, November. So we really wanted to have an episode to really shed some light on this problem and help our listeners understand it a little bit more. And you were one of the first people to really like present on this topic. So can you tell us how people came to identify the rising cases and where did it start and where is it now? So me and my partner, Elena Gutierrez, so we're both hepatologists here in Birmingham. And we started noticing in the fall, um, around October, that we were just getting a bunch of cases of these kids that would come in with kind of similar symptoms of gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea, subjective fever, things like that. But what was odd is all of them had really severe hepatitis, meaning that their liver transaminases were very high. And it happens, right? We, you get kids that get admitted with different things, infections, autoimmune, whatever, and they present. But what was odd was just the closeness of when they were admitted. This was like within a month. And so that and the severity of their symptoms and how they presented really got us thinking there's something going on. And so when they came in, we did a broad workup like we do for everybody with um, hepatitis or severe hepatitis. And one of those categories is infection. And we do test for adenovirus here. And it was just weird that every single kid was positive in their blood for adenovirus. And one of our ID colleagues astutely reached out to the CDC and it piqued their interest and they got involved and we met at the end of the month to kind of discuss these cases. And it's kind of just snowballed from there. Luckily, only have picked up about four more cases up until February. But as everyone knows, it's just blown up both in Europe and in the States. Um, This just kind of odd severe hepatitis in previously healthy kids. So that's where we're at right now. I know that in the United States, it's been reported in about 25 different states. They've seen cases, including Puerto Rico. There's been reports coming out from the UK and Scotland and a bunch of different countries in Europe. It's really interesting what's happening. I can't really explain why this is all occurring. I can't really tell you where it started. But at the time, me and Elena reached out to a bunch of mentors, colleagues, just asking, hey, is anybody else seeing this? And at the time, no one had the situation that we had. I feel lucky that I had my partner with me and we went through these cases together, but it's a story that's um, continuing to unfold. We're working with the CDC right now. We're working with NASPGAN, just trying to figure this all out because it is really odd. Right. And there's been a lot of discussion in the medical community regarding the causes of this increased cases of acute severe hepatitis, and that's been leading to liver failure. And some possible links is, like you mentioned, the adenovirus. Although we think it's the cause, we're not certain. And the thought process was, is it SARS-CoV-2? Is it one or is it the other? Or is it both together? I think there was a recent article from Lancet that said, they hypothesize that these cases are a consequence of the adenovirus infection with intestinal trophism in children previously infected by SARS-CoV-2 and carrying the viral reservoirs. So, so far, what do we know about the cause of these cases? I know maybe down the future, we're going to know more, but so far, what do we know? 
That's a great question. I wish I had the answer to that, right? I read the SARS-CoV-2 article as well. It's a very interesting article written by people that are much smarter than me. And I think it's an interesting hypothesis. And I think the only way to figure it out is just to get more data, right? And to collect more of these cases and just to see what's going on. The reports out of Europe of those tested for SARS-CoV-2, you know, about 11% were positive upon emission, right? So that's not a huge uh, amount of kids, but obviously with this whole concept of intestinal viral reservoirs, maybe these were previous infections. I don't know. What I can say is for our cases, none of them tested positive for COVID. And this was by PCR. And none of them, when we asked, said they ever tested positive for COVID. Although there were some exposures, nobody had an active infection. In a recent meeting that we had with the CDC, that was one of the questions that popped up. It's a chicken or egg situation, right? Was the adenovirus the cause of all of this? Or was there uh, some sort of underlying issue that was triggered with the addition of adenovirus? And could this be SARS-CoV-2? I I don't know. But again, I I think the more cases we have to collect, the better, because obviously having numbers will help. And I wish I had the answer. I really do. Yeah, and a follow-up question on that, from my understanding, is that they collected stool samples for COVID. The cases that you had, was it just nasal pharyngeal swaps? Was it just antibody for COVID? Or Mm -hmm. did you look more into the stool samples? And is that something that um, people are now looking for? That's a great question. So all of our testing initially was through swaps, so respiratory swaps, right? The stool samples uh, were not tested for COVID. And unfortunately, again, when these were all coming through, this was not standardized. We didn't know what was happening. And so not all of them had stool samples collected because not all of them had diarrhea. I, I do know that we're working on testing residual blood samples for serology. So, yeah. Quick question. When you decided to call the CDC, was it just like 1-800-CALL-THE-CDC? <laughs> or You know what I mean? Like, how did... Who do you even know to contact for this? Oh, I mean, you know, (laughs) so um, we have some really excellent ID colleagues here. I believe, and I hope I'm I'm quoting the right person, but I believe Dr. David Kimberlin, who is one of our infectious disease doctors here, contacted them initially. And that's how it it got the ball rolling. Uh, I I don't have contacts (laughs) at the CDC. So um, (laughs) anyone who needs to call the CDC. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you had mentioned these patients present with diarrhea or other types of symptoms. What are the specific features of these cases when it comes to the acute severe hepatitis? Is it similar to other viral hepatitis that we see, or was there something specific about this patient population, like conjunctivitis or some other features that you see with adenovirus? Yeah. Great question, Jennifer. There wasn't really anything in particular that you could just look at a kid and say, oh, they have adenovirus. No, it was the bread and butter jaundice sclerolectris that you'll see with other viral infections that cause hepatitis. So there wasn't anything in particular that look at and just say, oh, this is probably it. Because we did actually have other cases around the same time where they came in with hepatitis, but they didn't have adenovirus. There was other reasons for it. A lot of them did have diarrhea. A lot of them did have emesis. Some of them had upper respiratory symptoms, but not all of them. So it was the mixed bag. 
But again, the only thing that really linked them other than the severe hepatitis and cholestasis was they were all positive for adenovirus in the blood specifically. Can you comment more about how severe their hepatitis was? What were their numbers? Right. Were they, did they come in acute liver failure? Did they develop it later on? Um, right. So the transaminases, if I can remember correctly, the range was in the thousands. I believe the ALT and AST were both above 15 to 1700. Wow. Most of them were cholestatic. And I think the direct ability was above five, but there were a handful that had acute liver failure. They either presented or progressed to acute liver failure. And those that progressed, they got pretty sick. Right. And th these are not, you know, just common like NAFL transaminases. These are really high uh, numbers. That again was just something that was just really strange to us when they were all coming in back to back to back. And really, honestly, like for example, I see kids with viral induced hepatitis and with this rising cases, a lot of us are worried about our patients. What do we want right. to do? How can we identify them as soon as possible? Is there anything that we should be doing or any decisions we should be making to evaluate these patients, to manage them? Do we need to test for adenovirus for anybody that presents with hepatitis or acute hepatitis? And if we do, how do we test for that? I think just with everything that's been going on, I certainly would. One of the things that I pulled from this experience is that when you do test for adenovirus, test it on whole blood. The reason being is actually some of the samples that were tested on plasma were actually negative. But when you tested the same sample on whole blood, they were positive. So the thought is, is this cell-based, right? With whole blood. I, I think it would be appropriate to, to test for adenovirus. We know that yeah, even before all of this, we, we knew that adenovirus is, was a potential cause for hepatitis, especially in those that were immunocompromised and really young kids. But with all of this going on, I, I think it would be appropriate to test. And again, to test for adenovirus on whole blood PCRs. For Anybody who presents with acute hepatitis, even if it's not severe? Again, the range, even though the median was pretty high, the range varied, right? And so there certainly were some kids, I think, that did present with transaminases that were under a thousand, and we still tested them for it. Just given everything that was happening, we were just like, let's just test them for it. And they tested positive. So I would say definitely for those that come in with severe cholestatic kids with high transaminases, I would definitely test them for it. And if it's a PCP's office and consider testing. I think the, the message for PCPs that we've been pushing is how do you identify liver injury, right? Because we don't want the public, we don't want parents to panic. Oh my, my gosh, my kid has diarrhea. My kid is vomiting. My kid has a fever. As we all know, these are super common things that happen, right? In the pediatric population. My kids have diarrhea right now. Uh, I don't know if that's TMI, but you know, it, it's just one of those things. People should be aware in the public and the PCPs that if they present with these things and signs of jaundice or scleral ectoris or things like that, then they should reach out to a center that has pediatric gastroenterology or hepatology. I think that's the important message to push out right now. Just to make sure that I understand this correctly, these cases have hepatitis, but also have cholestasis and yep. jaundice because not all right. viral induced hepatitis have that. Is that correct? Right. Right. A majority of them did have cholestasis. I would say maybe one or two, their bilirubin wasn't really that high, although a majority of them, again, presented with jaundice. That's good to know.
We've talked a little bit about the milder cases, but let's talk about the transplant piece. So how many patients do we know so far have gone on to transplant? And do we know the time course from when the symptoms started to when the transplant happened? Sure. So I know that in the United States, at least the last time I looked, I think it was about 15 so far have required transplant here. Fortunately or unfortunately, there was two. And the time course for us was a few weeks, actually, because it was a tough situation because active viremia can be considered a contraindication, right, to liver transplant. But at the same time, you're dealing with a child who's slowly progressing and could die, right? The good thing, at least I can report for the two patients that were transplanted in our cohort, they're doing very well which I'm very happy about. I know in the UK, there's been a handful, I think there was 80 something cases. In those cases, seven were transplanted in the UK. The kids that got transplanted were very, very sick, very sick. And what was interesting is it seemed like actually their adenovirus viral loads were actually higher upon presentation. Again, it's the question of chicken and egg, right? Was it the high viral load of adenovirus or was there something underlying that triggered when the adenovirus hit? I don't know. But again, the nice thing about this is at least from the two cases from our cohort, they're doing great. A follow-up on that. You had mentioned how active viremia is not... (laughs) It's not the best time to transplant somebody. And certainly with some of our other viral, it's been a while since I've done transplant hepatology, but you know, like we do screening for EBV and CMV, and that might affect our post-transplant decision-making as far as how we treat them. So for this patient population, especially the ones with a high adenovirus viral load, do you treat them any differently post-transplant or did you just treat them pretty standardly as far as how much we immune suppress them and we have to treat the adeno? To first answer the question, patients with the high viral load actually treated with antiviral prior to transplant. So sodafovir is one of the medications that can be used. And then post-transplant, really, really close monitoring of the adenovirus. A couple of questions that kind of came to mind. First of all, anything other than supportive measures for acute liver failure, anything specific other than the viral therapy do you do for these patients to hopefully prevent transplant? And then out of the biopsies, do these patients have adenovirus in their biopsy, the liver biopsy? Right. So to answer the second question, immunohistochemistry, electron microscopy for the the patients that we biopsied here were all negative for adenovirus, which was really strange. And what I learned over this course was that a typical presentation of adenovirus infection in the parenchyma is this confluent type of necrosis. And none of the patients had that, which is also interesting. There were PCRs that were done for a few of the biopsies that did turn out positive. But the question though was, was this due to the positive viremia in the blood? And did that um, lead to the positivity in the tissue sample because they're, they're going to be bloody samples, unfortunately, especially in the setting of coagulopathy. And then in terms of other therapy that was attempted, we did try hydrosteroids, right? Because some of the thoughts we had was, is this an immune dysregulation? Are they presenting with something that we could potentially treat with steroids? We looked at different autoantibodies for autoimmune hepatitis, and they weren't positive for those. And we tried steroids. I I believe we tried IVIG. Obviously, as things progressed, things like CRRT and plasma exchange were necessary, unfortunately, for some of the kids just to help with fluid overload and 
coagulopathy and things like that. Essentially, it was all of those things we tried just to buy them time and just to see if we could get their, their viral loads down. Is this specific for pediatrics or have the adults identified also arise in cases of severe acute hepatitis leading to acute liver failure? So far, I have only seen reports in children. Per the European definition, it's kids under 16. But from what I've seen so far, a majority of these kids are under 10. I have not seen any reports from my review of adults being affected by this, which is interesting. So far, it's all pediatrics. What's the youngest? We had a few that were two and under. Yeah, so pretty young. Adenovirus has been around for so long. So the big question is why now? It's a horrible virus, right? It can cause so many things and bone marrow suppression. I think it has caused hepatitis in the past, but not this particular serotype, which is the 41F serotype. So what's your opinion on why we think this might be happening now? Yeah, again, great question. I think there's a lot of theories going on around. I just had a conversation with one of my former mentors, Sunny Harpovat, about this. The question is, have we been in this bubble, right? With COVID, we haven't had a lot of exposure to other people. And is there just something different? Because you're right, the virus has been around forever. And all of the existing reports, at least, that I've seen from this serotype haven't reported severe hepatitis like this. It's more so gastroenteritis. And I don't know. I think, again, the more cases that we can pull together, the more we can try to figure this out. I wish I had the answer to that, but I just don't know. And we're theorizing, right? So we're not quite sure it's adenovirus. There's other mm -hmm. possible causes that we might have not identified yet. Do you know what the other theories are? I know it's yeah. only theories, but it's I just I'm interested to know what right. the causes are among the hepatologists. I, I think there's a lot of conversation about this concept of immune dysregulation, right? Is there an underlying immune dysregulation that's just being triggered by the adenovirus? Because again, none of our biopsies at least showed adenovirus in the tissue. And so was this the body trying to fight off this adenovirus and somehow led to almost like an autoimmune picture fighting off its own liver. I don't know. And so those are some, some of the concepts right now. I know the, the leading kind of theory from the Europeans is they think that there's something to do with an infection and potentially a double hit. And I'm not sure. It's, it's really interesting. I can't put my finger on what exactly is leading to this, but again, like I've been saying over and over again, the, the more cases we have, the more we'll know. So there's more to learn about this. For our listeners that want to learn more about this, where should they go? What are the resources? And if they do identify new cases, where should they report it? If there are new cases, I would definitely report these to your state health. That's where I would start, either your county or state health department. Again, the CDC is actively involved with all of this, and so they will have the capabilities to reach out to them and give them the information. In terms of resources, the CDC has put out some information about adenovirus. Again, the European institutions have also put out literature on this, and so I would start with those. Certainly talk to your local pediatric hepatologist or gastroenterologists, pediatric infectious disease doctors um, are also a good resource. And I would probably go to those resources first. There's a lot of information out on the internet, right? There's a lot of articles. There's a lot of theories. I've always been taught to take things with a grain of salt, especially in medicine. And I would just be cautious with the information that's out there right now. Some of it's really good. 
don't get me wrong. But again, I would probably start with the CDC as a reputable resource. I think as with all of our patients, right? Like we have to treat the patient who's in front of us with the knowledge that we have in that moment. This is one of those instances where we don't know everything that's going on, but Certainly, if you have a patient that you think might be experiencing a similar process, then we would want to learn as much as we can so that we can help this patient in front of us, but also help others. Yeah, totally agree. And again, that was our message initially to pediatricians and parents around our state is if you see this, let us know. And this is something that we all have to work together on. And so that's the beauty of medicine, right? It's so collaborative, different uh, subspecialties, infectious disease, GI, general pediatricians. It's all kind of this working group to try to figure this out. Well, and certainly you already mentioned that it seems like the case numbers are going down. Is that true? At least here, knock on wood, (laughs) we haven't really seen this pop back up since February. But again, back in October, I reached out and I didn't hear anything. And now it's in like half the states. My hope is that it may slow down. But again, we'll see what happens. Keep your eyes out, peeled. Don't panic, but think about this. If you see a patient with acute severe hepatitis is what I'm hearing. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. I know this was very short notice, but we just thought that this was so important to get the message out there. And we ask all of this of our guests, looking on your career so far, what do you feel is the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? One of the things that stuck with me, and I remember right as I started, I talked to one of my mentors from fellowship, and he told me, you're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen, and you're going to feel horrible about them, but you move on and you learn from them. And so that's something that I've kept in my pocket. There's things I wish I could have done better in retrospect, but you learn from them. And it's never wrong. It's never a sign of weakness to reach out to colleagues mentors, former co-fellows for help because we're all in this together. Nobody knows everything. And especially with this stuff that's going on. I I remember when all this was happening, I was like, what is happening? And so I, I reached out and I think that's just something as a junior faculty, you have to remember that it's okay to do that. You're still learning. I'm still learning every on what I should do, what I shouldn't do, what I need to do better about it, what I did okay. <laughs> so I, I think that's probably my biggest piece of advice for anyone that's junior and, and going into this kind of crazy world that we're in. And I think we think that as junior faculty are the only ones that reach out to our colleagues, but I think mid-level and senior faculty also do that. Because like you said, nobody knows everything and it's better to reach out to somebody instead of doing something that you're not sure of. So our goal is patient safety. Great, great, totally great, great advice. Thank you very much for joining us once again. And we appreciate your time. Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> Eight years. Yay. Eight years. Oh, that's great. Thank you for talking to us about this hot topic. Any final words for our listeners? I just think the more we know, the better. And as long as we collaborate and we help each other out with this, it's going to be for the betterment of everybody, the kids, the pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists, the families. This is something that we all need to work on together. And I think we're going to get there. And But I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's a, a big honor to, to talk with you guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. What a great 
time. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. We hope you go to the link on our show notes to claim your free CME for that episode. Yeah, get your CME. Make sure you get them. Why not, right? Exactly. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would be really helpful if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast or two or three or four. Doesn't matter. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASCAN Foundation. You can get there through www.nascan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASCAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.